everyone. Welcome to a special bonus episode of our new podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. On December 15th, the Times of Israel hosted an event in Jerusalem with prominent legal scholars who discussed the new government's plans to curtail the high court's power and explored its likely far-reaching impact on Israeli democracy and society. Now you can hear what was said at this event, as well as additional interviews in our limited podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. In these eight episodes, we hear from eight different thinkers from diverse walks of life who express their extremely varied opinions. So please check out this episode and subscribe to Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin, wherever you get your podcasts. Israeli democracy in danger? As judicial reform is discussed in the Knesset's halls, we at the Times of Israel are taking a journey probing into what are the country's current checks and balances and what could be the consequences of potential new legislation. Are we headed for a tyranny of the majority or rather implementing much needed legislation? Join us as we explore these issues with top Israeli legal experts in this limited Times of Israel podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode in which we hear Professor Amichai Cohen give an overview of the historical balance of power of Israel's judiciary. He spoke at a Times of Israel live-streamed event on December 15th at the Israel Democracy Institute in Jerusalem on the topic of judicial reform. You will hear Times of Israel editor David Horvitz introduce Amichai and ask some follow-up questions after his remarks. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes, which will include remarks from other speakers who have very different points of view. Let me introduce our first speaker. Amichai Cohen is a senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute and is going to give us an overview of Israel as a Jewish democratic state, a state without a constitution but with basic laws, and look at the historic role of the High Court, and I'm sure introduce many of the themes that we'll come to as the evening proceeds. Professor Cohen is a member of the Faculty of Law at Ono Academic College and previously served at its, as its dean. He's written numerous books, including a 2020 work on Israel's Supreme Court entitled The Constitutional Revolution and Counter-Revolution, where he explained the changing role of the High Court of Justice in maintaining the checks and balances of Israeli democracy. Professor Cohen, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me to this important and timely conference. Uh, the current balance of uh, power in Israel was devel developed over a span of 74 years. I use the term 74 years not by mistake. In January 1949, the Israeli people went to the polls and elected a constitutional assembly, which was supposed to fulfill a commitment in the Israeli <coughs> Declaration of Independence to write a constitution for the state of, of Israel. However, in the first act of a constitutional revolution, this constitutional assembly decided not to author a constitution, but instead turned itself into a legislative assembly and also declared that they will write 
a set of basic laws which will serve as a draft for the future constitution once they are uh, completed. For its first 30 years, Israel was in many senses a one-party state. The Israeli Labour Party, Mapai, had complete control over Israeli politics and especially over Israeli bureaucracy. Most of the policies in Israel were actually developed through Israeli bureaucracy, not through the Knesset. Mapai actually did not want to use the Knesset, which limited its power uh, because it had complete control over the bureaucracy. In that time frame, judicial review was almost exclusively administrative review. The uh, Israeli court, in a set of radical decisions, overturned decisions of ministers, of specific officials within Israeli bureaucracy, without the need to overturn any legislation, which they supposedly <coughs> did not even think they had the authority to do, but it was not needed because the policy was framed through the bureaucracy. This ended with the political change of power in 1977 when the Likud came to uh, power and especially with the great national unity governments of the 1980. The locus of power moved to the Knesset from the uh, bureaucracy and legislation became the main way of uh, doing policy. Now, in that time frame, also tensions within Israeli society emerged the tensions between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi parts of Israeli societies, Jews and Arabs, liberal, secular, uh, and on the other hand, conservative, uh, more uh, religious uh, Jews. And these tensions threatened the previous ties that were the bedrock of uh, political organization in Israel. Everyone realized that the issues were delicate, and without consensus and agreement, the state might be torn apart because of these tensions. What emerged, what, what could be called the Israeli Great Compromise. The first leg of this compromise was the centralization of political power in uh, the Israeli parliament and in a gradual manner, the control uh, the taking control over the Israeli parliament by the Israeli government or cabinet. So the power, the political power was all centered in one institution. There is one important elections in which uh, Israelis go to, they go to uh, elections to one institution, and that institution, the Knesset, is almost wholly controlled by the cabinet. Actually, it's, it's controlled by a small number of leaders of the parties who form the coalition. A very small number of people, ranging from three to, say, eight people, control the entire political power in Israel. Every other uh, power, the parties, the Histadrut, the Great Labor Union, all these were weakened. The entire political power was centered. There was a reason for this, and the reason was that the compromise between the different factions within Israeli society had to be centralized in one area. Any other way would have led to a, uh, an institution that might have undermined the compromise and uh, then tearing apart the uh, delicate balance of the Israeli society. So what emerged is, in a comparative sense, a unique system in democracies where the power, the political power is centered 
within very few people, very few people hold all political power. Now, as a balance to this uh, centralization of political power, what emerged is the court. The court emerged mainly as a way of balancing the centralization of political power within this very small nucleus of political control, very small number of people. Now, once again, I'm, I want to stress it. Perhaps in a comparative sense, the court did not get stronger than it was. It had the power to, um, for judicial review over policies even before that. This is what uh, important decisions of the Supreme Court did in the 1950s, in the 1960s. What happened in the early 1990s was that the uh, court received or decided it had also power to strike down legislation. Because all policymaking power moved to the Knesset, then this meant that the court had power over policymaking. How did it do that? In 1992, the Knesset passed a basic law, uh, <coughs> human dignity and liberty, and the court interpreted this um, basic law as authorizing it to strike down legislation that violates the rights uh, that are enacted within this um, basic law. It was not the first time, when the court decided this in 1995, it was not the first time the court struck down legislation, but it was the first time that the court declared that the basic law by themselves give the court power to strike down uh, legislation. Actually, the, the limitations that the court uh, put on the political power in the early years of the 1990s, perhaps uh, early years of the 21st century, were quite limited. Mainly, the court dealt by using the powers for striking down legislation in two areas. The first area was protecting minorities that had no power or very limited power in the political uh, uh, institutions. I want to stress again, all political power in Israel was centralized in one institution. Minorities that had no say, no voice in that institution had very limited possibility to affect any policymaking, and the court saw itself as, in a way, protecting these minorities. So, Arabs, Palestinians, um, uh, uh, people who, uh, asylum seekers or, or infiltrators from other countries who had no rights to vote in Israel. So this was the first thing the court did. The second way that the court acted was to protect Israeli democracy against interest groups, which he saw them as taking um, advantage of the centralization of political power and gaining something which uh, the, without justification. So the, the big example, I think, is the ultra-Orthodox community. The court saw the ultra-Orthodox community as an interest group that ha has gained through the Knesset more power than it should have gained and, um, and, and saw one of its roles as limiting the power of this uh, interest group. This uh, balance of powers was relatively accepted until... 10, maybe 15 years ago in Israeli politics. But the political system evolved again. 
certain politicians wished to enhance the power of uh, politics and so the limitations that the court put on on their ability to um, uh, enact policies as illegitimate. Now, some of these people had, had legitimate concerns and worked to change the balance of power within the system. So, for example, the former Ministry of, uh, Minister of Justice, Ayala Chaked, worked through the uh, committee that uh, elects judges to, to elect judges which are less liberal and perhaps more conservative, more aligned with their political views. Or the minister uh, Gidon Saar proposed to uh, split the uh, office of the attorney general, an important office in Israeli politics, to two, one the legal advisor of the, of the government and the second, the head of the criminal prosecution. But there are also more radical politicians that wish to change the entire basis of the modern Israeli democracy. What they believe is that elected officials should almost never be limited, and they reject the view that, in, that Israel's unique system of politics, where all political power is centralized in one institution, somehow justifies uh, the emergence of a strong court. And uh, an additional thing, I think, is that also what also emerged in Israel are strong, a strong civil service legal advisors within the government, a strong independent civil service, they reject all this and they claim that elected politicians, once elected to the control of the Knesset, the power should, should almost never be limited by any external uh, institution. What they are unwilling to accept, I think most of them, is that in order to do this, and in order for Israel to continue functioning as a democracy, there needs to be some decentralization of political power. There is no democracy that operates as a democracy that can be based on the centralization of political power in one institution. All democracies accept the idea that power should be decentralized. And even an elected institution should never have unlimited powers. However, in order to decentralize Israeli political uh, institution, first, the basic tensions that cause the centralization of power should be solved. So, can we now solve the tension between secular and religious Jews in Israel. It's important. Otherwise, it will be very difficult to decentralize political power because each specific political power will undermine the Israeli way of life. Can we solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? If we can't solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the idea that there will be several political actors acting within this sphere and fighting each other on this issue is very uh, problematic. I would uh, end here. Uh, in sum, the new radical uh, movement is one which aims to change the politics of Israel to one which is, has almost no parallel in any democracy, especially no democracy which sets strong tensions between different political ideologies and identities within it. Can I put one question to you? Um, 
Professor, before I go on to our next speaker, which is, you know, you, you certainly did not uh, um, let me down when you said before that you would be uh, expressing some opinions as well as uh, um, providing the context. Um, do you see no room for any kind of reform as opposed to radical overhaul uh, that, that constrains the um, capacity of the High Court to intervene? If the legislation, I mean, we don't know what the legislation is going to be. If there is a model of the legislation that ensured that it was not very, very straightforward and easy uh, for a simple 61-strong uh, vote in the Knesset to be able to re-legislate, but a larger majority that by definition would include, it, would include members, even significant numbers of, uh, from the opposition at any time, would there not, uh, in that kind of circumstance, be some place for some constraints on the High Court's capacity to intervene? So first of all, there is, in my opinion, no system that is sacred, perhaps other than religious systems, uh, which cannot be reformed. So certainly there is room to think about reforming. Second, I think that focusing the entire political power on reform which relates to the power of the court misses the point. So let's think about other reforms too, and then it will become much more acceptable. So, for example, would we think that local governments would have more independence in deciding matters of the, um, relig the religious secular tensions in Israel? By definition, if more decisions would be at the local level, less de decisions would have to come to the court because the level of decision would be more local and probably more fit. <coughs> but are we willing to accept it? Are we willing to accept kind of Israel in which different, different local governments have different policies with regard to the religious secular tension? Are we willing to accept uh, an autonomous decision-making by the Arab minority in Israel? So one question is, are we thinking only about the judicial power or are we also thinking about decentralizing power? But specifically to answer your question, of course that there is room for balance. And in, you know, under certain circumstances, some people might even think that it's beneficial. But I want to give a, a, a short warning here. And perhaps this is uh, stepping into the... Uh, area in which uh, our, my friends will speak, but I'll just, so i do it very short. If the suggestion for an override clause, for example, is in order to bring in more voices and more discussions into the, the decision-making, then it might serve the, the purpose. But if the purpose of the override clause is to lessen the tensions in Israeli society and lessen the tensions between the political and judicial branch, it would not work. It will only make the tensions greater. I'll explain why. Suppose that there is an override clause. Then the Knesset would feel freer to pass legislation because even if the court would strike it down, it will have the ability to um, override. And the judges will be freer to strike down legislation because it's not their responsibility. If the Knesset wants to override, so the Knesset will override. The idea that the override clause will somehow lessen the tensions between these branches, I think, uh, does not take into account the way that the political powers work in reality. 
Thank you for listening to this piece of a discussion hosted by the Times of Israel delving into all sides of the looming High Court Override Clause proposal. A thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to TOI's own Mick Weinstein. Shalom. Thank you.